in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these next few minutes as we are thinking about your word and meditating upon your word. I pray that your spirit would quicken hearts this morning. There's absolutely nothing that I can do to help anybody in this room. It's all on you, God. It's all on your spirit. So, Father, I pray that that as the word of God goes forth this morning... Those who are in Christ would know and love you more and cherish you more as they hear about the great things that you have done for them. And I pray for those who do not have salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning would be the day of salvation for them. That they would fully live and experience Ephesians 2 for the very first time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I bring uh, greetings to you from Pastor Steve. I just spoke with him last night, just briefly. He just wanted to call to let me know and let you know he was thinking about you guys and praying for you guys and he's praying for the service this morning as well. His heart is here, as always, even when he's on vacation. And, um, uh, and he's thinking about us and praying for us this morning. He's having a great vacation. He actually is about to head out to the lodge later today. As he puts it, he's going to go off the grid. So he's going to be completely inaccessible by phone or email, which is great because I don't want him on the email during vacation. So you can pray for him that, he, that his vacation is actually a vacation. And so far, it seems to be the case. But in the meantime, I am delighted to, uh, to talk with you for the next couple of weeks out of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. When Steve and I first decided that we we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, I was selfishly in my heart saying, I, I want Ephesians 2. I want to do Ephesians 2. And, and how the schedule laid out, I'm scheduled to preach while we're in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'm delighted about that. The, uh, the desire in my, of my heart, in my ministry, in my teaching, and in my preaching is to be used by God to help others see how grand and glorious and wonderful and beautiful God is and how valuable He is. My number one priority in my ministry is not to fix your marriage or to fix your kids or to help you get off of drugs and alcohol and pornography. Now don't get me wrong. I want to see marriages healed. I want to see fathers and mothers loving their kids and their kids loving them back. I do want to see you freed and delivered from the sins that so easily entangle you and entangle me. But that's not my number one priority. If, all, if I'm just trying to treat sins and, and address sins and just preach a lot of moralism. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Obey this list. 
If that's, if that's all I'm doing, then I'm just focusing on the symptoms of a much bigger problem. That being our own lack of love and affection for God. Therefore, my number one priority as your pastor is to shepherd you through exalting Jesus. Because if, if God would be so gracious to, to use me as a means to glorify Him through demonstrating in my preaching and in my teaching and in my counseling and in my shepherding that God is to be desired and loved above all things and is supremely valuable, then that will spill over and begin to impact your marriage and your parenting and your battles against sins. And, and, and a part of our cultivating our love for God, part of our, our, our cultivating our passion for Him, our treasuring of Him, is to be reminded of the things that demonstrate Him to be great, to be glorious, and worthy to be praised and cherished. Remember the days you married people? The, the, the early days before you were married? And you were falling head over heels for your spouse? And you were just filling up and overflowing with intense love and affection and devotion for that person? What was it, uh, what was it that just intensified those feelings and made them stronger? Well, you just thought about her. Or you thought about him. You reflected on those things about that person that were beautiful and wonderful and greatly to be desired. You thought about the qualities and characteristics and mannerisms and ways, uh, all, the, all those things that were great about that person and just in the very act of thinking about that person, uh, of meditating on aspects of that person, what happened? Your, your passions your affections, your feelings of love and devotion just intensified. And by the way, that happens after you're married, too. But after you're married, it takes more work because now you and that wonderful other person are living under the same roof 24-7 and you begin to realize there's some other less desirable traits that that other person has. And if you're not careful, you can quench the appreciation of the more positive characteristics by, by thinking about all the negative characteristics of that person and that works both ways because you bring some baggage and some ugly stuff to the table as well you're both sinners but God is different than us we have baggage and there's ugly stuff about us that repels others but God is 100% beautiful and to be desired at all times that there is an inexhaustible supply of things that you can praise God for that you can exalt God for that you can love God for. So, this is my goal in the next two weeks. I'm praying that God, as we're looking at Ephesians 2, I'm praying that God will quicken our hearts and that as we are meditating and thinking about how great and wonderful and awesome and incredible and beautiful and amazing God is, as we're meditating on those things, that's going to that's stir up within us uh, and increase our passion and our love and our desire for God. That's my prayer over these next couple of weeks. But because we are human, and because we struggle with sin, we still need help to see God in such a way uh, that it just increases our devotion 
and, and our affection for him. Uh, we need help to, to see him in a way that increases that love for him in such a powerful way that it spills over and affects other areas of our life. We need to have our eyes opened by God so that we can more clearly see the greatness of God. And, and Paul recognizes this too. At the end of chapter 1, we talked some about this last week, we read this last week, but at the end of chapter 1, he prays for the, for the church in Ephesus that they would more clearly see these things. He says, if you want to back up with me in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 17, great prayer from Paul. He's praying that the Lord God of our Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at, the, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul, in chapter 1, is praying that God is going to move in the midst of the people in the church of Ephesus. And he's praying that these people would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may more fully know the great things that God has done for them. And then in Ephesians 2, he gives an example of an amazing demonstration of God's power in their lives. This power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and in me and in all who believe. And Paul wants us to know this, to be amazed by this, to grasp this. Now, if Paul felt the need to pray for his readers, I should and do feel the need to pray for you and me this morning as we move forward. So let's pray one more time. Father God, I pray that over the next two weeks as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That you would open our eyes. That you would help us to see you more fully. That you would draw our hearts towards you. That you would increase our affection for you as we, as we begin to learn and love and appreciate you more and more and more and more. Help us with that, oh God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have heard the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves? How many of you have heard that phrase? Probably just about all of you have heard that phrase. Um, According to some polls taken by George Barna's research group, 8 out of 10 Americans believe that this statement is in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Maybe you thought it was in the Bible, or at one time you thought that it was in the Bible. That phrase might sound like it's in the Bible, but that statement and statements like that have been around for a, a very long time, it's, even though it's not in the Bible. In fact, the origin of that statement has its roots not in the Bible, but in pagan religion. 
500 years before Christ, Aesop, remember Aesop? Aesop's fables? Have you read some of those as a kid? Aesop's fables? Aesop wrote, The gods help them that help themselves. This notion, this, this phrase became popularized by, by, actually by Benjamin Franklin. And the notion of God helping those who help themselves has unfortunately affected, or should I say infected, one of the most significant doctrines in the Bible, namely the doctrine of salvation, the gospel, how one escapes hell and enters into heaven. God will help you, sinner, but before he helps you, there are some things you have to do, some steps that you have to take, some hoops that you've got to jump through. God will help you, but you've got to take the initiative. He's waiting for you, but you've got to make the first move or else you won't be saved. God helps those who help themselves. And yet this notion of God helping those who help themselves is antithetical to what we see in Ephesians 2 regarding how God saves people. I will also argue over the next couple of weeks that a God helps those who help themselves take on salvation steals glory from God. And it makes God look smaller. And it makes our salvation look not quite as great. And there are three things in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that I want us to look at. One of them we'll look at in full today. The second one we'll kind of touch on today and expand upon next week. And the third one we'll fully look at next week. But three things uh, that we're going to look at is what we were, what God did, and why he did it. What we were, why God, what God did, and why he did it. And, uh, and next week as we finish up, I'll try to bring home some, some uh, points of application in regards to how we re- should respond to these truths. But I think as we go through even this morning, there's going to be some self-evident, I think, some uh, applications that are going to be, become obvious to you as we go on. All right, so let's look at the first one. What we were. What we were. Let's look again at the beginning, the first couple of verses here of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In order for us to fully realize fully grasp, fully appreciate, fully be blown away by what God did in saving us, we've got to recognize, we've got to realize what he actually saved us from and what our condition was before we were saved. What you think actually happened in salvation will greatly, will greatly affect how, you, uh, how great you think your salvation is. What, what you think God did in saving you will either make God look more great or will make him look less so. One of the most popular illustrations that I've, that I've heard regarding what happens in salvation is the illustration of the drowning man. You probably have heard this illustration before. The, the sinner is depicted as a man in the ocean who is drowning. He cannot swim. 
He's in serious danger of going under and drowning. And in fact, he will drown and he will die if he doesn't have someone to help him. God is seen as a lifeguard with a, with a rope or a life preserver. And he's tossed this rope out to the drowning man. The rope is right there in front of the man. All he has to do to be saved from death is to reach out and grab that rope. If he will just put his trust in that rope, in that lifeguard, if he grabs that rope, he will be saved from drowning and he'll be pulled to safety. Paul, however, in Ephesians 2, paints a much bleaker picture of the condition of humanity. Does he not? Paul does not say that you were drowning, does he? What does Paul say about your condition before you were saved? You were you were dead. He, he says you were dead in your sins. You're not drowning. You, you already drowned. You're not struggling in vain to stay afloat. Your corpse is already on the ocean floor. That's the, that's the image here. You're dead. Everyone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ is already dead. Now, now what is, we got to take that apart. What, is, what does Paul mean? What's he talking about dead? I mean, even though he says we were dead in verse 1, right after that, Paul gives a description of things that living people do. Let's look at it again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we've got people who are walking. We have people who are following and who not only have passions and desires, but they are actually carrying out those desires. That doesn't seem like dead people. They're doing stuff. They're walking. They've got desires. They're going after those things to fulfill their desires. But Paul says, no, no, we were dead. So obviously he's not talking about physical death. So what does Paul mean when he says dead? God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. God didn't say, if you eat it, you will eventually die. God said, on the very day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Immediately when you sin, Adam, immediately, death will happen. When Adam ate from that tree, he did not drop dead physically. It wouldn't be for another 900 years that he would drop dead physically. But God does not lie. And God said, the day, the very day that you eat of it, you will die. Something happened to Adam. Some kind of death came upon Adam. But obviously, physical death wasn't the primary thing on God's mind when he gave this warning to Adam. And if Adam didn't die physically that day, then the death that happened must have been a spiritual death. And because we are all descendants of Adam, we share in Adam's nature and in his condition. Romans 5, 
12. The Bible says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. And Paul says, all of you at one time were spiritually dead. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, think about the word dead for a moment. What are the characteristics of a corpse? Cold. Lifeless. Unfeeling. Unresponsive. Completely obs- uh, oblivious to stimuli. Now you take those characteristics and you transfer them into the spiritual realm. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? It means spiritually you are cold. Spiritually you are lifeless. Spiritually you are unfeeling. Spiritually you are are unresponsive and oblivious to certain stimuli, spiritual stimuli. That was what you were before you came to Christ, dead in your sins. Now, how does that square with Ephesians 2? It doesn't seem like the description in Ephesians 2 is describing a people who are unfeeling or unresponsive to outside stimuli. In fact, Paul describes our pre-salvation life as living in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body. There is some stimuli there. There's some sinful passion there. There's some sinful desires there. And these dead people are responding to that. They're not dead to that. But they're dead to something because Paul calls them dead. Adam didn't drop dead physically and go to hell when he ate the fruit the day he died. Adam had sinful passions in the flesh. Adam carried out the sinful desires of the body. He's not dead to sin. That's for sure. So what did Adam become dead to? What were, what were we dead to before we were saved? We were dead to God. We were dead to the things of God. That's the kind of death that Adam experienced immediately. That's the kind of death you and I experienced pre-salvation. All of us, as descendants of Adam, at one time lived in a state where we were cold towards God. We were unfeeling towards God. And every person you know, I don't care how nice they are to you, I don't care how many good deeds they do, I don't care how alive they may seem, if they have not been rescued from their sins by Christ, if they have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are dead. They aren't going to die. They're already dead. The Bible talks about what this deadness looks like in a lot of places. I'll just give you a couple of them that hopefully will help. But John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed so if people are responsive to god then it's a negative response 
Jesus is the light. People in their natural dead state hate the light. They do not want to come to the light. They love darkness more. They love sin more. That's how you were before you were saved. Dead people don't want Jesus. They may give some lip service to Jesus. They may say nice things about Jesus. They may even take the label Christian. But they really haven't submitted to the lordship of Jesus. You know people like this. You know people who say they believe in Jesus and yet they're not really loving Jesus and submitting to Jesus. Muslims say nice things about Jesus. Buddhists say nice things about Jesus. Atheists, for crying out loud, say nice things about Jesus. And while they are saying nice things about Jesus, they're also stiff-arming him at the same time. They don't want Jesus coming too close to them. They're not interested in bowing the knee and fully embracing him for all that he is. Why? Because they love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't come to the light lest their works be exposed. Romans 8, 7, chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says this, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you follow the next few verses, Paul makes it clear that those who are in the flesh are those who are not Christians, those who have not experienced salvation. So he's describing everybody who's outside of Christ. They have minds that are hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law. They can't submit to God's law. And that's what it means to be spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people are hostile towards God. And not only does Paul say that spiritually dead people do not submit to God's law, he goes a step further, doesn't he? He says that spiritually dead people cannot submit to God's law. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul gives us another glimpse into what this deadness and hardness implies for what we are unable to do. He says, the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The problem is not that the things of God are over his head intellectually. That's not what Paul's getting at. An unsaved person can intellectually comprehend the gospel. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral and spiritual issue. Man in his deadness always rejects the gospel. There are lots of other places in Scripture that give testimony to the deadness of man's heart towards God. I won't go into all those now. We'll go on and on. The point is that that man naturally resists God. Man naturally rejects God. Even if he embraces another religion or a form of pseudo-Christianity, that in and of itself is a rejection of the God of this book. Man in his natural state cannot submit to God's word no more than a corpse will listen to your word. You can go to a graveyard and you can talk to a corpse all day long and that corpse is not going to listen to you. 
It's not going to respond to you. Elsewhere, the Bible pictures the heart of man like a heart of stone. Again, a stone is lifeless, unfeeling, cold, unresponsive, insensitive, and hardened. Man's heart is continuously hard towards God. And not only were we dead and hardened in our pre-salvation state, but the Bible says also that we were slaves. We were following, Paul says, after the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. Not only were we bound in our sins, but we were bound and held captive by the devil and his power. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says this. In their case, he's talking about people who are rejecting the gospel. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So not only is man in a dead state and naturally unresponsive to the gospel because of the hardness of his heart, but on top of that, the devil, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they will not embrace Jesus. So man is dead... Man is a slave. Are you feeling good this morning? Encouraged by all this? Man is dead. Man is a slave. But the picture gets worse. Paul's not done yet. Verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The point of this is to make clear that our problem is not just in what we do. Our problem is is in who we are. Who is ultimately my biggest problem? I am my biggest problem. You are not my main problem. My job and my boss are not my main problem. Outside circumstances that are coming against me, that's not my main problem. My nature is my deepest personal problem. See, I did not not first have a good nature and then do some bad things and get a bad nature. That's what some people think, that people are naturally born good and and over time as they get old, older, they they start doing some bad things and bad habits and then they kind of pick up a bad nature along the way. That's, That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Psalm... David in the psalm says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, from the, from the very womb, there was this, this, this sin nature in him, even in the womb, passed down from Adam. This is who I am. The Bible says that we, by nature, our children of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the punishment of God. We deserve hell. So man before Christ, before salvation, is dead. He's a slave. And he's suited for wrath. Yes, that is depressing. It gets better. Really, it gets better now. Story changes in verse 4 with two grand and glorious words. What are they? What are the first two words in verse 4? 
Hear it louder. But God. But God. We were in a hopeless state. We were lost. We were dead. We were by nature children of wrath. But God did something. God intervened. God showed up. God acted. That leads me to the the second point of focus. We talked about what we were. Now we move on to what he did. How did God act? Look at verse 4. Did I scare her? How did God act? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did God do? The Bible says that we were dead. But God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So, salvation is not merely God throwing a rope into the ocean to save a drowning man. And if that drowning man just grabs onto the rope, he'll be saved. No, salvation is much bigger than that. And much more grand and glorious and awesome than that. God has done a bigger work than that. Remember I said earlier that man in his natural state cannot submit to God's word. No more than a corpse will listen to your word. You can go to a graveyard and talk to a corpse all day long. That corpse is not going to listen to you. You cannot take a corpse and make it listen to you and rise up, make it rise up from the dead. But God can. Remember in Ephesians 1, where we started, Paul's prayer. He prays that the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul Paul wants us to know that. And part of us knowing that and grasping that is to remember what God did for us. The power that raised Christ from the dead, that breathed life into the corpse of Christ, is the same power that breathed life into our dead spirits and raised us to newness of life. Paul is linking the resurrection of Christ in Ephesians 1 to the resurrection of our spirits in Ephesians 2. If God were merely a lifeguard throwing ropes out there and people were grabbing on to them, people could still say, yes, the lifeguard saved me, but I did something. I was able to grab onto that rope and hold on. It was 99% lifeguard, 1% me, but I did something. And if I hadn't done it, I would have drowned. Me and that lifeguard, we were partners in my rescue. Yeah, he did most of the work, but he needed my cooperation. 
That's not what's happening in salvation. That's not what happened when you got saved and when I got saved. You didn't didn't want to cooperate with God. I didn't want to cooperate with God. You hated God. I hated God. I was hostile to God. I didn't love God. I didn't want God. I gave lip service to God. And so did you. I didn't want that. We hated the light. Our mind was set against God, as Paul talks about in Romans. You were, you were cold and you were hardened towards God. And more than that, you were dead. And when God saved you and me, he did not throw a rope out for us to grab onto. No, he dived into the ocean. He swam all the way to the bottom. He saw Demer's rotting corpse on the ocean floor. And because of his great love and his great mercy, he took that dead body to the surface and he breathed life into my cold, dead heart and he raised me from the dead. It's what God did for me. It's what he did for you. But didn't I choose God? You might ask. And sure, sure you did. But the point is, why? Why did you choose God? Why did I choose God? How did that happen? Why did you choose God and not your neighbor? If you and your natural state were dead towards God, if all those scriptures that I just read about man hating God and not submitting to God, and being hostile to God, if all those Bible verses are true, what changed? What happened to you? Go back to those two words in verse 4. But God, God did something. God intervened. God rescued. And after God took me from the ocean floor, and he resurrected me, after he revived me and made me alive to him, after he removed the blindness that Satan blinded me with, then I could see. I could see how great Christ was. I could see how glorious Christ was. I could see how beautiful Christ was. And after I saw all those things nearly 20 years ago this fall, I said, yes! (laughs) I want them. I need them. I got to have them in my life. I want to follow him and submit to him, and I want this man who rescued me from the dead to be my Lord forever. And I chose God, sure, I placed my faith in him, but only after he chose to resurrect me and fill me with new life. I wouldn't have been able to do that without him. Listen to how the Bible describes salvation in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Spirit, I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So when God saves us, He takes our dead hearts of stone. 
and he turns them into parts of flesh, parts that are alive and sensitive to the things of God so that we walk in his ways. But again, who takes the initiative? Who does the work? Can a corpse resurrect itself? Can a corpse raise itself from the dead? Dead man needs someone outside of himself, someone stronger than death, to raise him from the grave. The only reason that you responded to the gospel in the first place is because God raised you from the dead and gave you a heart of flesh. You did nothing to save yourself. God did everything to save you. Even the heart that you had that cried out to God in faith and said, Save me, I'm a sinner. That heart was given to you by God. So we can't even take credit for that, for the faith that we have. The theological term for all of this is that regeneration precedes faith in Christ. It has to. doesn't make sense the other way. In layman's terms, before you can do anything for God, God has to do something for you. We'll talk more about that next week. If God helped those who helped themselves, we would all still be dead and on our way to hell. Thank God, God doesn't help those who still help themselves. Rather, God helps the helpless. That's what it's all about. Let's uh, bow our heads and prepare our hearts to pray to our great and mighty God. <clears throat> and as your heads are bowed, and as I talk for just a few moments and launch us into prayer, as I, as I, as I talk, pray even in your heart in response to, to the things that I'm sharing with you right now. And as we pray, we get ready to pray. And I preach about the salvation available through Jesus Christ. I'm not tossing out lifelines drowning people, praying that those people will have enough strength and willpower and goodness to grasp onto those words. Rather, when I preach about salvation, I'm praying that God will use the words of the gospel message to breathe life into dead people. I'm praying for spiritual resurrection. I'm praying that God will take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. That's my prayer right now. You are a sinner. You are by nature a child of wrath. You have hated God, you have rebelled against God, and you deserve eternal wrath in hell. You are a sinner. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for sinners. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the hellish punishment that sinners deserve, so those sinners don't have to pay for their own sins in hell forever. Do you feel God is awakening your dead spirit right now? If you feel a softening in your heart, to the things of God, the reason you're feeling this way is because God is doing something in your heart. You are not doing this right now. This is something supernatural that's going on. And right now is the time to respond. Today is the day of salvation. Pray to Him now. Call out to Him now. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus right now. Receive forgiveness of sins. Embrace the Savior. Love the Lord that you formerly hated. Be a child of the living God. Call out to him right now in prayer where you are. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you are feeling that pull in your spirit, it's time. Many of you in this room have already placed your hope in Jesus. You've been raised to newness of life, but there's much more growth and healing that needs to happen. You may be raised from the dead, but you are battered and bruised. 
you're still struggling with old sins and patterns that keep coming back. And as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, recognize that that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Holy Spirit that raised your dead spirit to life, that spirit and that power He has dwells in you right now. God raised you, but He is not finished with you. After spiritual resurrection, there is further healing, further growth, further changes that God wants to work in your heart. Call out to the Lord right now, this morning, where you are sitting. Ask Him to continue the good work that He began in you, to continue to renew you, and to set you free from the sins that so easily entangle you. Ask for His forgiveness and the power to conquer those sins. It's available right now. Pray this. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you can better see the greatness and grandeur and power and beauty of our God so that you may love Him more and want to glorify Him more. Steve Doyle and I were praying together on the phone last night for you and for our church, and I told him to pray for our whole church. I told him to pray that the eyes of our heart would be further enlightened, that we may see God more, that we may love God God more. We're all struggling with different types of sins in this room. And I become convinced more than ever that the key to victory over the sins that we battle is loving Jesus more. I truly believe that as He becomes more magnified in our lives and in our vision, as Jesus becomes more and more the center of our lives, the center of our hearts, as we cherish Him more and more, we will find increased victory over sin. People struggling with pornography because people are struggling with pornography because they 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 love they need to love Jesus more. People struggle with treating their spouses right because they don't love Jesus enough. People struggle with anger and with pride and with greed and with covetousness and with idolatry. All these sins are symptoms of something deeper. Father, help us. Everyone in this room needs more help from you. Everyone in this room needs more enlightenment from you. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wondrous things in your law and in your word and in you and in your son. Father, help us to treasure Christ more. And as we treasure him more, help us to, to turn away from those sins that we have treasured. God, help us with that. I pray that you would send spiritual revival and spiritual renewal amongst Harbin's Community Baptist Church, and let it start with me. Let it start with me. And thank you, thank you, thank you that you're so good, and that you're so kind, that you're so loving towards people who you, who, who are your enemies.
First of all, I want to have Mark Pierce uh, come up. Uh, one of the ministries that we partner with is the Georgia, Georgia Baptist Children's Home. And uh, Mark has a word about how you can help them out big time. <laughs> Wesley, come on. 
good propaganda, Mark. Have the kids. Good propaganda. Have the kids do it. All right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Uh, and we have our, you can, you can be seated if you want to. Um, and we have our marriage conference coming up, the Art of Marriage Conference, uh, July 29th and 30th. That is a Friday and a Saturday here at Harbin's, and I really want you to be a part of that. Uh, let's go ahead and run a little quick video clip uh, about the conference. James chapter 4 teaches us that the source of all conflict within us is a, an internal war. James asks an interesting question, and I think it's a question that we've, we've all asked from time to time. It's, it's a question that every married couple asks, and that is, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And, uh, and, and what's so interesting about the way James answers that question is that he doesn't locate our anger, our, our quarreling in the other person. He doesn't locate it in our past. He doesn't locate it in our experience of oppression or in the way that we were parented. He, he located, locates it in our passions that are at war within us. So all of a sudden, we, we have this radical transformation in how we understand anger. That, it, that somebody else can't make me angry, that only I can make myself angry, and it particularly and specifically, it's, it's sin in me, it's passions that are at work against God that just make me want my way. So when we have rage and anger come into our lives, uh, it's not coming from a happy place. Uh, it's gonna be coming out of selfishness, it's gonna be coming out of self-centeredness, it's gonna be coming out of uh, a, a sense of revenge, uh, or just not getting our way. I think most of anger in marriage comes from exactly where most sinful anger comes from in any situation. It's from an idolatry of the ego. Where does marriage always go wrong? It's when I want the right to set the rules by which this relationship would work. That's at the bottom of every marriage difficulty. Whether it's, I don't want to have to say I'm sorry. Or I don't have to always want to be nice to you. Or I, some days I don't feel like serving you. That's taking God's position. That's writing my own law. And then what I want from you is I want you to keep my law. Now I'm angry, not because you've broken God's law. I'm angry because you've broken my law. Think about it. Think how little of our anger has anything to do with the kingdom of God at all. Every culture, I mean, you just, you, you meet people from all over the world, and almost every culture has an excuse for anger. It's my Scottish temper. 
It's my Irish red hair. Uh, it's my hot Latin blood. You know, it's 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 my, you know, black heritage. It's my and every culture has an excuse, you know, in other words, anger is a sin for other people. But because of my genetic makeup, it's not a sin for me. There, there's many faces to, to anger. And so for some people, they hear the word anger and they, there's a traditional face of a person exploding, throwing stuff, slamming doors, cursing, yelling, screaming. I think there's 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 a passive side to anger too. It's kind of the silent assassin, where you just go, oh, okay, I hear you. Anger's got many faces, and to be sure, Jesus is he doesn't downplay anger at all. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he he, he equates it to murder, and I I, I love that metaphor there because anger undealt with kills, and one of the things it kills is it kills relationships, kills marriage. There are chronically angry people. There are people who it is a huge, life-dominating, long-term thing. I would imagine that's two things. I think there is some learned behavior in that. I have sat with couples who are so mean to one another, literally I would have tears in my eyes and realize they weren't emotionally responding to it because they got to a level where that was just such habit. And as I sat with couples like that, I would, I would always think, I, what would it be like to be raised in that kind of environment where that level of meanness and anger and abusive talk and slamming the door and walking away, all those kinds of things were so normal that that became the norm for me in terms of how human beings act and respond. I think the other is that, that there are a lot of people who've had horrible things happen to them, who, are, who have injustice in the deepest sense of what that term means, that have never had a context where that could be dealt with, and there is, there is a brokenness inside of them, an anger inside of them. <clears throat> um, you need to come to this conference, uh, you really do, uh, July 29th and 30th. And uh, this is not like a warm, fuzzy, kind of milk toast kind of conference. You're going to be dealing with some tough stuff, anger being one of them, but there'll be other issues as well. And no matter whether you have a weak marriage, mediocre marriage, a strong marriage, a struggling marriage, a marriage that is on the brink of divorce, or a, a godly marriage, but you need help, you need more help, we all need help, you need to come. In fact, everybody who's a part of this church, if you're in town this weekend, I want to see you there. That's how strongly I feel about it. I'm always checking that little list out there, this little sign-up sheet to see if there are new names on it. I hope that I see new names on there today. And uh, the sign-up sheets are in the back. If uh, the bottom of the page it runs out of space, turn it over, and write your name on there as well. So hope to see you there at the conference coming up at the end of the month. Um, I think that is it. Uh, so let me just close this in prayer, and then we will be dismissed. Father... Uh, thank you so much for gathering us together to worship you and to exalt you and to magnify you. You are great and you are worthy to be praised. And, uh, and Father, I pray that you would enlarge our vision of you in our hearts. Be thou our vision, O God. Help us to see you more and to love you more and to savor you more. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace.